You guys are quiet. Thank you. Thank you to that one person over there. Hey, uh, Serving Saturday, let me just uh, put a little uh, explanation point on that. The idea is that we would all, yes, that we would all step up and serve uh, that Saturday. I don't know if the slide got changed. What's the date, Anna? It's the 13th. It was wrong in the first service, and I had 307 people tell me it was wrong, to which I just said, did you sign up? But anyway... uh, so, the 13th? Yes. Okay, November 13th, uh, we're going to show up. We have uh, senior sisters, a long list of people who are uh, just looking for people to show up, clean up their yard, clean up the flower beds, pick up the sticks, do what needs to be done in the house. Uh, you can do this as a family. You can do this from four to 400. I don't know that there's anybody 400 years old, but you know what I mean. Uh, young or old, come as a small group, uh, come as a D group, come as a C group. Uh, grab the people that are sitting in your row and say, hey, I don't know you, but wouldn't it be fun to get to know you by serving on the 13th? But just show up, and we will send you out. Bring your rakes, bring your stuff. You show up here, uh, you're going to get a little assignment. Okay, here's the address. Go clean up the yard. If it's not the right address and you clean up somebody else's yard, just tell them we did it in Jesus' name, and it'll all work out. All right, but let's all show up and do it. It's going to be a blast. If you go out these doors and up the steps when I'm all done, there's a kiosk up there. I think it even says Serving Saturday on it, and I think Anna Ebright will be there, and she'll be able to get your name and kind of give you any of the details that you need to know, but it's not that complicated. Let's just show up and do it, okay? All right, well, Anna says okay. Anybody else Okay. All right, let's do it. Hey, for the last several weeks, we have been walking through the book of Philippians in a series that we have entitled Relationship Matters. Uh, I was reminded the very first week of this series by my friend Richard came to me and reminded of a Harvard study that we had both been introduced to quite a few years ago, actually, a study that's been taking place for over 75 years on adult development. And so Harvard has, has put together this, and they've discovered in their study that relationship actually does matter to, to a person's health and well-being. And here's what I would say to you. I don't know if you know this, but all truth is God's truth. And I believe that Harvard has stumbled on to a spiritual reality that takes us all the way back to the beginning of time, all the way back to Genesis, right? What is Genesis 2.18? The Lord is talking. He says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. We are wired for community. You've heard me say it almost every Sunday. You cannot walk faithfully with Jesus in isolation, relationship matters. But I wanted you to see a little bit of this TED Talk. This is the guy that is about to speak to us who actually is overseeing the study now. There's been, I think, four or five different directors of the study over the last 75 years. But he works for Harvard, and he is doing the Harvard study. And this is a TED Talk he did, which is obviously a lot longer than this. But it's fascinating to me uh, what their findings are. So let's watch this video. There was a recent survey of millennials asking them what their most important life goals were. And over 80% said that a major life goal for them was to get rich. And another 50% of those same young adults said that another major life goal was to become famous. (laughs) And we're constantly told to lean in to work, to push harder (laughs) and achieve more. We're given the impression that these are the things that we need to go after in order to have a good life. Since 1938, we've tracked the lives of two groups of men. 
The first group started in the study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. And the second group that we've followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements, many without hot and cold running water. What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. We've learned three big lessons about relationships. The first is that social connections are really good for us and that loneliness kills. It turns out that people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to community, are happier, they're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are less well-connected. And the experience of loneliness turns out to be toxic. People who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. So the second big lesson that we learned is that it's not just the number of friends you have, and it's not whether or not you're in a committed relationship, but it's the quality of your close relationships that matters. It turns out that living in the midst of conflict is really bad for our health. And living in the midst of good, warm relationships is protective. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. And the third big lesson that we learn about relationships and our health is that good relationships don't just protect our bodies, they protect our brains. It turns out that being in a securely attached relationship to another person in your 80s is protective, that the people who are in relationships where they really feel they can count on the other person in times of need, those people's memories stay sharper longer. Relationships are messy and they're complicated and the, the hard work of tending to family and friends, that's not sexy or glamorous. It's also lifelong. It never ends. The people in our 75-year study who were the happiest in retirement were the people who had actively worked to replace workmates with new playmates. Just like the millennials in that recent survey, many of our men, when they were starting out as young adults, really believed that fame and wealth and high achievement were what they needed to go after to have a good life. But over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fared the best were the people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, with community. So I think what's missing from the study, if you go back and you listen to the whole talk or if you even read some of the findings, is they never really addressed the how factor. 
right? They've addressed the what. What do we need? We need relationships. They never say God has wired us for a relationship, but in the end, that's what they're discovering, that God has wired us for a relationship. But they never tell us how. How do we avoid, as he talks about, the, the toxic relationships? And what I love about the book of Philippians is it's not only telling us that we need relationship, but it's also giving us a very clear roadmap, a way by which we can have healthy, life-giving relationships, relationships that help us to walk faithfully with God. We've talked about these every single week, and we'll probably talk about it again next week because I want them to be ingrained in your psyche. But what comes out of Philippians are four keys to a healthy relationship. Four keys to a healthy relationship are humility, honor, encouragement, and prayer. And I want to park here for a minute because one of the findings of the study, right, is that toxic relationships, uh, relationships that are full of animosity and bickering are bad for our emotional and our physical health. But the good news is if you put these four keys into play in your relationships, you will not have toxic relationships, Healthy relationships, I say this all the time, when I do marriage counseling, I say, actually when I do weddings, I say this a lot of times, having a great marriage is not that complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. Having great relationships with your friends, it's not that complicated. It's not always easy. There will be conflict but you can have great relationships. And these four keys are a major part of how that happens. Healthy relationships are not complicated, but they're not easy. If you are willing to humble yourself and apologize in the relationship, whether that's with a spouse or with your children, right, or with your coworkers, when you are willing to say, I screwed up, I'm sorry, I Ranted. I'm sorry that I, that I lost control. I'm sorry that I expected something out of you that wasn't even fair for me to expect. Every healthy relationship has to have continual confession and forgiveness. Every marriage needs continue because you are going to offend one another, because you are going to say what you shouldn't have said. You're going to respond in the way you shouldn't respond. So you humble yourself and apologize. Humble yourself and serve. And it will radically change your relationship. Humble yourself and consider the views of others, right? What we looked at in the third or fourth week, we talked about the idea that, that the scripture is saying, humble yourself and don't consider your own needs or your own views above the views or the needs of others. If that's a major part of your relationship, your relationship is going to be far less toxic, far less volatile. Honor one another. See value in every person you sit across from. Like see their value and, and recognize that God has created them in his own image. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Think about encouragement. One thing I discover is I walk, walk with people, especially in marriages. I see this all the time. In marriages, we tend to start to look for all the things we don't get. Right? We start to put all of our mental energy into what they don't do or what they didn't do or what they should have done or, or where you're disappointed. Imagine if you flipped the script. Imagine if you spent most of your mental energy recognizing what they do for you, recognizing how they are a benefit to you and calling that out in them. Imagine how much that would change the relationship if mutual encouragement was a regular part. What if that was the way you related to your friends in school where you were seeing things in them and you were encouraging them and calling things out of them? And then prayer. Prayer is central. 
I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, if you commit to earnestly praying for your spouse, and here's the deal, this doesn't count. Lord, would you please change them because they're a pain in the butt? Okay, that prayer's off the table, right? The prayer is, God, would you bless them? Would you pour out your favor on them? Would you show up strong in their lives? Would you help them in everything they do? Would you help me to see you in them? Like when you earnestly pray for your spouse, when you earnestly pray for your children, it will change your relationship with them. If you earnestly pray for your friends, if you are in a C group or a D group, if you commit to daily praying for those people by name, it will change your relationship with them. It just will. And so pray for each other. So, so these four keys, they, they, are, they are the key for us having those healthy relationships that this Harvard study is talking about, of, of living into and having relationships that give us life and help us with our physical and our spiritual well-being. All right, so what does all this have to do with, with the, what the passage is going? Everything. So grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. And so Paul is now going to talk about the necessity of the proper perspective and goals. If you're going to grow in your relationships, if you're going to thrive in your relationships, what you are thriving after, what you are going for, it's important that, it, that you know what it is and you're going for it. Okay, so you grab your Bibles. We're going to look at Philippians 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Hopefully by now your Bibles are falling open to Philippians. I don't need to tell you where it is. Philippians 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 12 through 21. Why don't you stand with me as I read this passage? Starting in verse 12, Paul writes, he's speaking of himself. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained." Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame. With the mind set on earthly things, but our citizenship, listen to this passage, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Philippians. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for how rich and vibrant and and full of life your word is. I thank you uh, for this study. I just thank you for how you have used it in so many conversations I've had already over the last few weeks. I pray that you will continue to use it in a powerful way. Help us to be who you've called us to be. Help us to walk with you. Help us to hold on to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
One of the things I said the second week of the series is that so often we as followers of Jesus move on to the next thing before we take hold of the current thing. Like we have this tendency, some of you are going to leave this broadcast or leave this room and maybe even today listen to a couple more sermons, a couple more podcasts. I talk to people and they're like, well, I listen to this person and I listen to this person and I listen to these podcasts. And what I would say is how much of that can you actually retain? How much of that can you actually apply? Right? And I'm guilty of this too. I read a great book and I'm like, this book is awesome. I buy copies of it. I give them to my friends. But then the next week I'm reading the next book. Right? I'm moving on to the next truth before I take hold of the current truth. And I believe there's something in Philippians that we need to take hold of. If you are in a struggling relationship, whether that's your marriage or a relationship with one of your kids or with your mother or father, if you are in a struggling relationship, maybe you need to linger in Philippians for the next 12 months. Maybe you need to hang out in Philippians until what Paul is saying becomes part of your DNA. Maybe we as a church need to hang out in Philippians until we are a church that is full of people who are encouraging, who are humble, who are honoring one another, who are extending prayers towards one another. There's something in this that we need to take hold of. Paul prays early in this letter that your love would abound more and more. It's not going to happen unless we take hold of these principles and live them out in our lives. So in our passage this morning, Paul is expressing in this passage that that it's critical for you to finish well, right? If you're going to stay the course, if you're going to fight the good fight, and he's using this metaphoric language of a athletic competition. He's actually talking about running a race. When I read this passage, I almost can see Paul like leaning into the tape, like getting ready to break that tape. Like he's, he's focused, he's looking straight ahead. Even as a person runs, they don't look over their shoulder because it slows them down, right? He's focused on where he's going. He's running towards the goal. He's going to finish Well, this is the metaphor he uses. So if you want to look at verse 14, he says what he says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's leaning in. He's he's chasing after it. But the question we have to ask is, what is the goal? If you read all the way through this, it's hard to pull out what the goal is. And that's because he's already stated the goal in the previous verses from our passage last week. So I want to take you to there. And this is what we're answering from this passage. What is the goal that Paul is straining towards? What is, he, what is he keeping his eye focused on and what is he pushing towards? So this is Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Hopefully your Bibles are still open to Philippians. This is just a few passages right before it. So verse 8, again, Paul is talking about himself. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I, first goal, may gain Christ. And second part of the goal, be found in him. You see that? It's verse 9. And then he says something right after that. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through the faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, third part of the goal, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fourth part of the goal, that I may share in his suffering in the fifth part and become like him in his death, that at any means possible, I may obtain resurrection from the dead. This is the goal. 
that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him, that I know him in the power of his resurrection, that I'll share in his suffering and become like him in his death. And I want to talk about these, each one individual. Actually, I'm going to talk about the first two together. So if you look at the first two, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, what I want you to hear, and Paul is making it clear, is this is a gift. You are saved by faith. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I want you to be my Lord and the Savior. Then you gain Christ and you are found in him. Paul actually reiterates that in the very passage. So if you look at it, what does he say in verse 9? He says, not having a righteousness of my own. Right? This isn't something that I can do in my own works. This isn't something I can muster up in my own strength, having no uh, righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. The scriptures are clear. You are saved through faith, not by works. It is a gift so that no one can boast. Paul's making it clear in his letter. Look, I've trusted in everything else, and none of it worked, right? It's faith in Christ. Christ alone is the only way to obtain these first two elements of the goal. You are saved through faith, right? He says, not that I have already obtained all this in verse 12. What is he talking about? Obtained what? Because he's obtained this of being with Christ. And then look at the rest of it. It says, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it, make what? my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What, what is Paul communicating? He's saying, look, this part of the goal is a gift, but from this point on, there is something that I am taking hold of. There is something that I'm growing into. There is something that I need to learn more and more about God. I am pressing forward. I'm becoming more and more like Christ. And in doing that, I, I'm trying to understand the power of his resurrection. I'm trying to share in his suffering. And in the end, I will become like him in resurrection form. So this is, theologically speaking, the difference between justification and sanctification. When you say yes to Jesus, you are right before God. You are justified, or God sees you as just, because of the blood of Jesus, not because you evened out the scales, not because you did this many bad things, but you've done one more good thing. Now the scales are, are better. You are right with God. That is justification. From that moment, you are a new creation, the scriptures say. You are given a, a new heart, and you now have to learn to live into who you are. This is what Paul is talking about in this letter. How do we learn to be who we are in Christ? You have a new identity, but you have to learn to live in that identity, to live out that identity. This is the process of sanctification, the process of being transformed more and more and more to the image of God. I said this last week, but if you want to grow up, you're going to have to show up. It does not just happen to you. It's not the great Shazam. You don't just say yes to Jesus, and tomorrow you are a mature, fully knowing follower of Jesus. When we wrote our mission statement several years ago, the most single debated word to this day is the word striving. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And people say, we shouldn't have that word striving in there. We're not supposed to strive. But this is the verse that we used. And this is the verse that told us we need this in here. We need to show up in the transformation process. Get this, people. We can't make it happen. Right? We, we can't make our sanctification happen, but we can short-circuit it happening. 
right? It is a work of the Spirit in us, but we have to cooperate with what the Spirit is doing. And that's what Paul is saying. I am striving to get all that I can as God takes me through a growing, learning process. I want to be sanctified before him. So let's unpack the, the other three parts of the goal. So the first part of the goal, that I may gain Christ. Second part of the world, that I'd be found in him. You get this when you say yes to Jesus. And then he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I would know him in the power of his resurrection. Meg and I are leading two C groups on Wednesday night, a different group each Wednesday of new or newer people at Grace. It's been great, but we are spending eight weeks in the book of Ephesians and we are answering the question, what does it mean to grow up? Or as Ephesians 4 says it when Paul says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the lead. What does it mean and how are we to participate in what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives to grow up in every way into him who is the Christ? How do we become mature, right? And and how do we participate in what God is inviting us into, And our only way to do that is to recognize and understand the power of the resurrection in our lives because the power of the resurrection is also how we understand the love of God, right? That that God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to die to give us right standing before God. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus, And to be more like Jesus requires that we understand the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You know the scriptures say when you said yes to Jesus that he gave you his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. What does that say? It says no matter what the problem is you are facing, you have what you need if you lean into the spirit of God in you to navigate through that problem. The only way to respond in the Jesus sort of way is to understand the power of the resurrection. The only way to persevere when life gets hard is to understand the power of the resurrection. We need to learn to see the power of the resurrection all around us. When you see great tragedy, when you see things that that don't make any sense, and then you see God show up in that tragedy and God do something amazing, that redemptive thing that God does in tragedy, that's the power of the resurrection. We see the power of the resurrection in all of our stories of salvation. We see the power of the resurrection when we see God make a way out of a circumstance when it seemed like there was no way that we could get through that. There's no way that God could use this particular story, this particular circumstances. I see the power of the resurrection in my marriage. I know many of you have heard this, but Megan, Megan and I, our first 10 years were as bad as it gets. No one has ever told me a story in this uh, role that I'm in now where I was like, wow, that's worse. It was bad. The power of the resurrection is that Megan and I have a beautiful marriage. When she started to walk with Jesus and I started to walk with Jesus and we invited the power of the resurrection into our relationship and God does something amazing in us and through us, that's the power of the resurrection. We didn't fix our marriage. God fixed our marriage. We didn't come up with a strategy on our own. God played a part in coming along. That's the power of the resurrection. I see the power of the resurrection every day that I work in this place. Most of you don't know this. I walked in these doors 26 years ago, a selfish, selfish person. The only person I cared about was me. 
and God got a hold of my life and God started to do something. God started to, look, I didn't go from there to where I am now in a minute, but he began to bring people around me and he began to change who I am. That's the power of the resurrection. It is only by the power of the resurrection that I can stand in this place as your lead pastor, knowing who I was when I walked through these doors. That's the power of the resurrection, amen? This is what I want you to hear. The power of the resurrection is all around us. The question is, do you see it? Or maybe the better question is, are you even looking for it? Are you praying the power of the resurrection over your wayward child? Are you praying the power of the resurrection over your difficult marriage? Are you praying the power of the resurrection over your school or your neighborhood or your community? Paul says that I may gain Christ, that I would be found in him, and that I would know the power of his resurrection. And then the fourth part of the goal, that I would share his suffering. This one's hard at first, but once you get it, it's, it's not as hard as we might first think. Share in his suffering. And maybe it's easier for you if you see how it's translated in a couple other translations. So in the ESV, which is what we use, if you want to throw that next slide up, it says what? It says that we will... Uh, that we may share his suffering. But the NIV says that we would have participation in his suffering. Feels a little bit different than share, um, but I actually like the New King James Version the best, that we would have fellowship of his suffering, the fellowship of his suffering. Now we gotta remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. I always like it when uh, writers say, well, it wasn't that bad, he was just on house arrest. I'm like, well, have you ever been on house arrest? Might have been worse than you think it is to have guards and chains and be sitting in a house. Doesn't sound all that good. So while he wasn't in a dungeon, he was still in prison. And we know he was suffering because he says this suffering is for the benefit of the king. So he, he admits to the fact that he's suffering. But what is Paul saying? He says, here's the deal. Jesus meets me in my suffering. He says, I share something with Jesus because he meets me, but also because Jesus suffered. We have a great high priest who knows our suffering and can meet us in our suffering. So there is this, I don't know how to say it any different, there is this fellowship that we have when we go through seasons of difficulty. He says, I share in this connection with Jesus because he shows up and because he understands and because he ministers to me. Don't miss this. This is an incredibly important spiritual truth and important for your spiritual well-being because in this world, you will have troubles. Everyone in this room at some point is going to suffer. They're gonna lose somebody they love. They're gonna have a relationship that's hurtful and it creates, I mean, you're gonna have a work situation that creates something. It doesn't matter where it is. We will all go through difficult seasons, but Jesus promises to be with us in profound ways in those seasons if we are willing to look for him, if we are willing to invite him into the process. I hear this often. I have a good friend actually uh, here at church who has gone through a really difficult cancer treatment and she would say it was horrible but I experienced Jesus in ways that I would never trade. She's not saying cancer's good. She's not saying, oh, I'm really glad I got it. What she's saying is I shared with Jesus something that I never would have experienced had I not gone through 
that suffering, that difficult season. I had breakfast Friday with two friends of mine. One of them has been battling brain tumor. And these are the words he said that morning. He said, I experienced change. I see the world differently. I think differently about my conversations. I'm more serious about wanting to bring Jesus into all of my conversations. I have watched him grow as a follower of Jesus because of the difficult season that he's gone through. What is he saying? He says, I have experienced Jesus, right? I have had fellowship with Jesus. I have participated with Jesus. I have shared with Jesus amidst my suffering. I want you to think about something. Jesus, right? We know who Jesus was. Really good resume, right? Son of God, part of the Trinity, right? You know what the Bible says about Jesus? That Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Just try to wrap your head around that. Jesus, without sin, Jesus, the Son of God, learned obedience by what he suffered. It's an amazing truth. But here's the deal. People seldom grow apart from suffering. It's just a reality of who we are. We seldom grow without some sort of pinch point, some sort of of difficulty that causes us to see the world differently or to think differently or to invite the spirit of God in because I can't do this on my own, God. I cannot battle this diagnosis that you've given me. I cannot survive this loss of this friend that that I know it's going to go. And the only way I can do it is if you will walk with me and then you share in the fellowship and participate with Jesus in your suffering. So the goal, gain Christ to be found in him, that you would know him in the power of his resurrection, that you would share in his suffering and become like him in his death. This takes us all the way back to week two. If you remember week two, I stretched that big line all the way across the stage and then I put that little tiny knot on the line and I talked about the fact that we need to see eternity and not focus on the dot. That's what Paul's talking about. Like, do you see the end game? Do you see eternity? Do you see that there will be a day, life is but a blink, but there will be a day when you are perfected in your body and you will spend eternity with Jesus. Yeah, you should clap for that one. That's a good one. That is a good thing. When he says be like Jesus, he doesn't mean be like Jesus, part of the Godhead. He means physically be like Jesus. Jesus lived, he died. When he was raised from the dead, he was raised in his same body. That's why he could say to the disciples, see the scars, see the nail holes, see the, the hole in my side. But his body was perfected. He still had flesh and bones. He even says to the disciples, look, I have flesh, I have bones. I'm not just a spirit. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is still incarnate. He has a perfected body and we will become like him with perfected bodies. That means there will be no more pain, no more migraines, right? No more messed up pancreases and no more cancer, no more tumors, no more addiction, right? No more anxiety, no more mental illness. We will be like him in redeemed, perfected bodies. We will become physically like him in the resurrection if we have said yes to Jesus, if we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Paul is saying this is the goal. 
that I would gain Christ, that I would be found in him, that I'd know him in the power of his resurrection, that I'd share in his suffering, and that I'll become like him in his death. And Paul says, I am determined to take hold of these. Right? He says, I am determined to know Jesus more and more, to grow more and more like it. Look, this is Paul. Right? He's got a pretty good resume himself, yet he still is humble enough to say that I got a ways to go. Right? I still haven't figured all this out. Verse 14, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm still growing too, is what he's saying. I'm still trying to figure out how to grow, how to take hold of these, these things that God has for me. I'm trying to learn even more what it means to understand the power of the resurrection, to share in the suffering of Jesus. This is a key, right, to the healthy relationship. Humility. Humility is that place of realizing that you probably haven't arrived that you still got some growing and some learning to do and that this process is a lifelong journey. While we know that our mission statement is to be a mosaic striving to live like Jesus, we also know we never actually live just like Jesus. And if you are living just like Jesus, I need to meet you, right? It's a lifelong journey to live like Jesus, to strain forward, to take hold of what God has given us. I wanna show you two more things in this passage that I think we need to hold on to. So he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead. Here's the interesting thing. Paul is not talking about his time in his life when he was making big mistakes. He's not talking about when he was persecuting the church and killing Christians. He's not talking about when he was working through the flesh. He's actually talking about his spiritual understandings. He's talking about when God has shown up in his life. He's not saying, I forget those. What he's saying is, I don't live there. And here's what happens. This is, happens all the time. God shows up in our life. God does something amazing in our life, and we just want to stay there. We're like, okay, I got it now. This is good. I got it all figured out. This is good. I just had God spoke through me. I'm good. I got to know, no, I want to do a new thing. Right? We want to live on day-old manna. We want to live on what God did yesterday, but we're not willing to press forward for what God wants to do tomorrow. And that's what Paul's talking about. He goes, you got to keep moving forward. Never be satisfied with what God has done in your life. And it doesn't mean to be dissatisfied with God. It means that he wants more. He's calling you to more strain forward because our tendency is to want to camp where we are. Like, oh, this is good. Let's just stay here. And God says, you can't stay here. Why? Because we're straining forward, because we're moving together, because I have new things and better things I want to teach you. The question is, what does all this have to do with relationships, gaining Christ, being found in him, the power of his resurrection, sharing in his suffering? What, is, what does it have to do with relationships? Everything. Because if you're not straining to take hold of this, you are straining to take hold of something else. And maybe it goes all the way back to the study, right? Maybe it's money or fame or influence. But the only thing that truly matters is your relationship with God and your relationships with others. We started there with the baby dedication, that you'd love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind and love others as you love yourself, right? The only thing that matters is our relationships. What are you straining for? Paul actually says, if you're straining for anything else, the end is destruction. And you can make this personally. If you're straining for something else, your God is your belly and your glory is going to be your shame. When we strain for the wrong thing, we toil in vain. 
But the good news is, the great news is, the last verse in this chapter, you, your citizenship is in heaven. And from it, you await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body and make, his, make it like his glorious body by the power that enabled him to bring even the to subject all things to himself. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. God is inviting you to grow up. God is inviting us as a church to grow up. He's inviting us to become more and more like Jesus, to understand the power of the resurrection, to be willing to share in the suffering of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be the church you're calling us to be. I pray that this study of Philippians would not just be another study. Lord, would you make it part of my DNA? Would you make it part of our DNA? Would you transform the marriages in this room through the truth of Philippians, through the power of the Holy Spirit? Help us to be humble with one another. Help us to honor one another, to encourage one another, to pray fervently for one another. Lord, we ask that you would transform this room. Those who are sitting here, those who are watching on the screen, those who were a part of the service earlier, Lord, would we, would we be more and more like Jesus? And we'd be a church that's known for the fact that we abound in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we have a group of people that would love... Thanks. We have a group of people that would love to pray for you. So if you have not said yes to Jesus, today's your day. It's pretty simple. You just come down and you say, well, it's not simple. It's profound. I surrender. I need God in my life. I want what Doug is talking about. There's people here can walk you through that. If you know that you've been trying to take hold of something other than the goal, good time to come down. As Martin would say, you need to leave something here and take something with you. We can pray that with you. If you have physical ailments or spiritual ailments or a little of both. We'd love to pray for you. If you're online, there's a number on your screen. You can call that number and somebody will meet with you and pray for you uh, that's trained. And I have a note here that says, don't forget to mention trunk or treat. So today is trunk or treat and you should all come whether you want to hand out candy. If you don't have a trunk, you can come stand by somebody else's trunk and have fun and hand out candy. We'd love to have you, but you're going to need to wear your raincoat. God bless you. Come back next week as we finish up Philippians.